Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing is set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Headspace and Timing, a podcast dedicated to veteran mental health and wellness. My name is Dwayne France, and I'll be your host. I'd like to thank Eddie and Bennett, the creators of Change Your POV Podcast Network, for reaching out and giving me the opportunity to share some of my thoughts on veteran mental health. These first few shows are going to be dedicated to telling you a little bit about me, my thoughts about veteran mental health, and the why in the heck you should spend your precious time listening to me. The Change Your POV Podcast Network is focused on helping veterans transition successfully from their military service to their post-military lives. If you appreciate this programming, please support the network by heading over to the Change Your POV Podcast Network Patreon page, located at www.changeyourpov.com Patreon. You'll be able to join other supporters of the show and by donating a few of your hard-earned dollars so we can keep bringing you some awesome content. So as I mentioned, I'm going to take the time uh, over these first couple episodes to talk to you a little bit about uh, who I am, uh, what I do now, uh, what I did uh, before <clears throat> in the military, uh, and, uh, and specifically on this first episode, I'd like to give you uh, 10 of my thoughts on uh, veteran mental health. So this is going to be kind of uh, laying the groundwork of uh, what I believe and what I think about veteran mental health. So first about me. I am a uh, retired Army non-commissioned officer. I spent 22 years uh, in the Army. Um, uh, a lot of my time was spent overseas, not just uh, in my deployments, but also um, I did two tours in Germany. My first tour uh, back in the mid-90s was uh, in Mannheim, Germany, and then did another tour later in Kaiserslautern, Germany with my family. And, uh, and I'll get into my military experience in a little bit, but uh, what I am right now is a uh, master's level mental health counselor. It means I, I have a master's degree uh, in clinical mental health counseling, and I work as a therapist, a counselor, exclusively with veterans, uh, some veteran spouses, but all of my work is, uh, is exclusively working with military service members and their families. The, the idea of what is a counselor, you know, everybody has the idea of, uh, you know, what a therapist is. You know, you got the image of Freud on the couch, you know, uh, uh, some, um, well, I do have glasses, but some guy with glasses uh, uh, stroking his chin and, and nodding sagely and giving you advice and uh, asking you about your mother. Uh, it's not exactly how it works. Uh, the, the idea of um, professional clinical mental health counseling, though, it can be very different. Um, I'm not a psychologist. Um, I'm not a psychiatrist. And, and there's a lot of different terminology in the field. So I'd like to go uh, through that a little bit. 
Uh, you have different levels of mental health professionals. You have a master's level clinician, which uh, um, individuals like myself, they have a master's degree uh, in some type of um, psychology uh, or clinical mental health related uh, discipline. Um, my particular um, degree is in clinical mental health counseling. Uh, I received my degree in uh, 2015, about uh, eight months after I retired uh, from the Army. But there are other types of master's level mental health counselors, uh, licensed clinical social workers. You'll see that as an LCSW uh, or licensed marriage and family therapist, um, also uh, known as LMFTs. My uh, particular uh, discipline is uh, uh, a licensed professional counselor, LPC. Um, right now, uh, as of uh, the airing of this, I'm approximately a month away from my full licensure. When, a, uh, when an individual gets a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, they have to work under supervision for a period of time before they're allowed to basically practice independently. Uh, and that's where I've been um, for the last two years since my graduation. I've been uh, working in an agency uh, under supervision. My clinical director is my uh, clinical supervisor. Um, and, and so that's for, for all of the mental health professions um, you need to have a certain period of time actually working with uh, clients before you can actually apply for licensure. Uh, so between the three types of master's level or, or mental health professionals have master's degrees, uh, there are some various differences. Uh, and uh, as we go through in the show, and I, I hope you'll come back and, and, uh, uh, and listen to some of them, we're going to have uh, a lot of different uh, mental health professionals come on the show. I'm going to have some LCSWs, some LMFTs, uh, and some other uh, licensed professional counselors like myself. And you're going to find that there's not really that much of a difference when it comes to clinical work. Uh, there's some theoretical differences. Um, uh, I personally feel as though myself, the uh, licensed professional counselor, I'm more focused on wellness um, as opposed to illness, meaning I don't automatically assume that a client is sick, that I need to make them well, uh, that I need to cure them. Um, I... Uh, come from the uh, the mindset that uh, uh, at some points we're less well, some points we're more well. We have some strengths in some areas, uh, and we need to shore up some things in some other areas. Uh, and hopefully as we uh, talk to some of the other master's level clinicians, we're going to find that we have a lot more in common uh, that that which separates us. That's something a lot of uh, veterans are kind of confused. Um, you know, they'll call me doc. Uh, I do not have a PhD. Uh, I'm not a doctor. Uh, of course, um, that's, that's some of the idea. I mean, heck, even uh, my family, I, I went home uh, a couple months ago and, and they said, oh, so you're a psychologist. And the psychologist uh, has a, a doctorate, a PhD or a, a PsyD in some type of uh, um, uh, mental health or psychology uh, discipline. And so the, the psychologist is a PhD level, a doctorate level. And those are the ones that can call themselves doctor. Uh, I am not a doctor. Uh, although um, we in the military have a habit of calling our medics doc, and they're even less of uh, medical professionals than uh, you know than, than maybe even I am, I guess. So while uh, while I appreciate it, and uh, and it's you know uh, I take it in the respect that it's given. There is a difference between a master's level uh, clinical mental health professional and a PhD level, a doctorate level. Uh, so you have the clinical mental health counselor, uh, clinic, uh, LCSW, LMFT, those are master's degrees, your PhD psychologists, and then you have psychiatrists. Uh, psychiatrists are medical doctors, uh, MDs, DOs, those individuals who actually went to medical school um, and then as part of the specialty um, specialized in um, psychiatry uh, specifically. Um, a psychiatrist can prescribe medications. I cannot uh, prescribe medications. I'm not uh, familiar with uh, medications. I do have some basic understanding of uh, psychopharmacology, but I am not a, um, a, a psychiatrist. Um, also, um, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners uh, are, are individuals that, that some veterans may come across. And so when, uh, you know, when, when somebody says, hey, I'm going to see the shrink, uh, they could mean I'm going to see my therapist, my master's level counselor. I could be seeing my Ph.D. level psychologist uh, or I could be seeing my psychiatrist, uh, none of which actually um, shrink, you know, anything. But 
um, this is sort of the, the complicated nature of, um, you know, what does it mean when I go to see a therapist? Who am I talking to? Uh, and there are other wellness uh, practitioners, uh, substance abuse counselors. Um, uh, I'm uh, currently practicing the state of Colorado, uh, and, uh, and there's different levels of substance abuse uh, professionals. You can have substance abuse counselors um, who have master's degree in uh, substance abuse counseling. You can have substance abuse counselors level two, level three, uh, you know, at different levels um, that, uh, um, that have different uh, specialties. You have uh, therapists that, uh, you know, mental health professionals that practice a, a wide range of um, different techniques. There, I have some colleagues who are um, uh, therapists, mental health licensed mental health professionals, but they specialize in equine therapy, for example, or, uh, uh, or other type of things like that. And then, of course, you have um, individuals who have no uh, specialized formal clinical mental health training uh, at the uh, um, at the master's level or above uh, for example um, but uh, but they still work in the wellness space um, you know life coaches <clears throat> you know the uh, individuals who are uh, teaching uh, things like uh, the seven habits of highly effective people or uh, things like that 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 it really it 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 moves into the realm of wellness and it moves into the realm of using your strengths um, to, uh, to become a better you, uh, executive coaches and things like this. Those are not necessarily clinical mental health uh, professionals. Um, it really, a, a lot of the difference is, is um, licensed clinical mental health professionals uh, are able to identify, uh, diagnose mental health uh, conditions, disorders. Um, I've had specialized training in uh, assessments, um, psychological instruments, uh, diagnosis, um, but even uh, basic theoretical orientation, the history of, of psychology, uh, and, and things like that. So that's a, a little bit of an overview of, uh, of, of even what it means to see a mental health counselor. A lot of veterans say, hey, I'm going to behavioral health or I'm going to mental health. Um, and you could see any one of uh, these uh, uh, types of mental health professionals. And, and it really doesn't matter. You know, it's, uh, um, and, and when I try to make this distinction, a lot of veterans are like, hey, can you talk to me? Are you going to help me? And is it going to be worth it? And as long as the answer is yes, they don't care if, you know, um, they just want to make sure that I can uh, help them out with whatever's going on. So uh, I have been working as a clinical mental health counselor directly since January 2014 um, as part of everyone's uh, every master's level program you actually have to start working as a therapist or a counselor while you're still in the program uh, and uh, I started working with veterans uh, as early as, as January 2014 uh, specifically working with uh, our local Colorado Springs Colorado Veterans Court the majority of my clients um, are all veterans who in, uh, in one way, shape, or form for one reason or another found themselves uh, crosswise with the law uh, and ended up standing before a judge and decided to uh, take advantage of an excellent program um, that helps them connect with clinical mental health counseling and, and therapy treatment in conjunction with uh, you know, uh, taking responsibility for what happened. Um, that is uh, definitely a passion of mine, justice-involved veterans. And uh, again, uh, as a teaser, it's going to be something that we're going to talk about uh, in upcoming episodes. Um, definitely hoping to uh, get some of my colleagues, um, not just in my court, uh, but uh, in different locations around the country, to talk about what a veterans court is, uh, what a veterans court does, uh, specifically from a clinical mental health counseling standpoint. Uh, on top of that, I, uh, I'm, I'm working in the nonprofit sector. I'm, I'm currently executive director of a nonprofit uh, that's affiliated with our for-profit mental health counseling agency. Uh, I don't work for the VA at all. Uh, I often say it's better to work with the VA than for the VA, but that's me on the outside. Uh, you're not going to hear me uh, bash the VA. Um, uh, as a veteran myself, I go to the VA for my services. You know, uh, I, I think that the VA is is uh, doing a lot of different things. I've I've seen a lot of different VAs in different regions of the country, um, and uh, just like I've been to a lot of different posts, and uh, say uh, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, 
um, is not as uh, as great of a place to be stationed as um, in Fort Carson, for example. You know, uh, and so just like uh, in the military, uh, you know, the guy at uh, Twenty Nine Palms uh, would rather have been stationed in San Diego. There's different areas, or there's there's different uh, um, regions in the VA, uh, and they're each managed independently. And and whether it should or shouldn't be like that, it's the way it is. Uh, but I do what I do as a private mental health uh, counseling professional, independent but uh, in uh, collaboration with uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, and, uh, and that's something else I hope is to have some clinicians from the Department of Veterans Affairs coming on the show, uh, talking about what their experience is. Um, I have seen the VA change over the last uh, 8 to 10 years. Um, I am the son of a uh, Vietnam veteran. Um, and through the experiences of my father, who um, has, uh, has moved from one uh, location to the other in different VA uh, experiences, uh, I've seen how it's changed um, just in the last 25 years. Um, and so uh, while I recognize that uh, the VA of today is not going to be the VA from 10 years from now, and it's not the VA of 10 years ago, um, there are definitely some... Uh, some improvements that can be made. Um, and I believe that it's uh, important for us as mental health professionals on the outside um, in the communities to be able to help bridge that gap. So that's a little bit about who I am and what I do now. Uh, what I did then, uh, I talk about uh, meaning what I did in the military. I was not a mental health professional in the military. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a truck driver. Um, and, uh, and I was in logistics and we can talk about soft skills and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the military is made up of a whole bunch of different MOSs, uh, in, uh, you know, long story short, which is a little too late already, but, uh, I decided to try and list in the reserves. Um, when I first joined, I lasted about a year before I decided that the army was the best thing that was uh, happening in my life at the time. Uh, but a lot of people don't know is there's no combat arms in the reserves. I went in the reserve, said, hey, you know, send me on the, the first thing smoking. I'll take whatever you got. Uh, and, uh, and they were all support uh, occupational specialties. Uh, then, uh, then when I went active duty, I said, hey, I'll take whatever you got. Send me, you know, I, I want to jump out of airplanes. I want to do, you know, really wild things. Uh, and they said, well, that's nice, but uh, you already have a job and the Army's not going to retrain you. So... If you want to come back in, you have to come back in as a truck driver. And there were some uh, different opportunities throughout my career to, to make different choices, um, to, to change my job, and I didn't. And, and I chose different things, and, and we can all kind of relate to those kind of things in our lives where you know we're standing at a crossroads and, and we choose one path and we just continue on down. Uh, but I did spend uh, uh, 22 years, uh, about uh, 21 of that uh, active duty um, uh, as a uh, logistics uh, guy, um, and uh, and I have the the unique um, experience of bridging the gap between the peacetime army uh, and the uh, and the wartime army. So uh, uh, I had been in the army for um, about uh, nine years um, or ten years, I guess, uh, by the time oh yeah nine years by the time nine eleven happened. Uh, so I had almost a decade. I was a staff sergeant already. Uh, and uh, my family and I were in Germany um, on 9-11. Uh, so for me, my memories of 9-11 happened in the afternoon uh, as opposed to, to many people in the stateside. Um, their memories of 9-11 are, are based in the morning. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and so I was in Germany when all that kicked off. Um, we did a lot of uh, support then um, in getting the first uh, uh, elements ramped out to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I was uh, I was in Kaiserslautern, Germany, and we did a lot of the uh, European support for the initial push into Afghanistan, uh, and uh, and was able to uh, uh, at that point I, I thought I was able to start negotiating my way into a uh, combat role. Uh, you know, I was a young staff sergeant and uh, one of the lead troops in combat and uh, all that glory in my eyes kind of stuff. Uh, and the Army, in its infinite wisdom, um, decides to give you exactly what you didn't ask for. Uh, and so I spent three years on recruiting duty uh, from, uh, from 2002 to about 2005. Uh, so I had the uh, benefit of uh, signing up young men and women 
to uh, to go uh, fight in combat um, before I was able to go uh, deploy. Um, and uh, and and even in and we can all make our jokes about the recruiter and the crooked individual. I will remind you, your recruiter was not the one that helped you choose your job. It was that guy at MEPS that talked you into taking that crappy MOS that you chose or when it helped you sign up for an undesignated MOS or tried to convince you that uh, fire support specialist means you were going to be a firefighter um, like, uh, like our friend Eddie um, uh, related uh, in his enlistment story. Uh, so it's that guy at the uh, at the the MEP station. It's not your recruiter um, who screwed you over. Although recruiter gets all the bad rap, uh, and, and I did know some uh, some unscrupulous recruiters, just like uh, we all know some unscrupulous individuals um, uh, in all our walks of life. Uh, but I had the benefit of being stationed outside of Fort Meade, Maryland, and uh, and it wasn't uh, useful for me to BS the uh, the young men and women that I was trying to put in the army. Uh, because everybody in in uh, in the community uh, served uh, one way, shape, or form, um, so uh, so it kind of kept an honest man honest, and uh, really um, was uh, was a good time. Helped me understand uh, a lot about the uh, uh, essentially later on as I went to um, be a leader in the military. It really helped me understand the uh, the young soldier, uh, the mindset of the uh, the new recruit, uh, so to speak. Uh, and so I, I do find that the my time in recruiting duty uh, helped me be a better leader in the Army uh, later on. Uh, so I made Sergeant First Class uh, while I was on recruiting duty uh, and then uh, uh, ended up um, coming out here with my family in 2006 uh, to, uh, to Fort Carson. And uh, less than eight months later, um, my unit was, uh, was on the ground in Iraq, did one of the first 15-month tours, uh, we were the ones that uh, got uh, surprised with 15-month orders. Um, we went on 12-month and we got extended for three. Uh, so Iraq 06 uh, to 07, December of 07. Uh, I was in uh, Fab Rastamaya. Uh, our uh, battle space was, uh, uh, was um, MND North, uh, Multinational Division North Baghdad. Um, the, uh, the area around the Rusafa district and... Uh, uh, south to Sadr City at that time. Um, our limits uh, were the southern uh, and um, I think uh, eastern borders of Sadr City. Uh, we, um, uh, the army, the military didn't go back into Sadr City until uh, April of 08, about four or five months after we, uh, uh, we took off out of country. Uh, but that was, uh, that was the, the heavy time of when we started the concretization of Baghdad and, and uh, the separation of uh, units. Um, uh, EFPs, um, electronic uh, force projectiles were were huge then, um, and uh, and if I've never seen the devil's tool, um, that's definitely uh, one of the most significant. Uh, my unit's mission, among other things, in moving uh, supplies around the battle space was uh, to be able to recover battle damage vehicles, which uh, uh, kept us uh, more busy uh, sometimes even than uh, than than uh, supplies movement. Uh, so uh, in that particular uh, mission, I was uh, a, a company operations NCO, a truck master for those logistics folks. Uh, basically, think about it as the uh, the company S three, uh, the senior uh, senior E seven for the company. So I was one of uh, one of the four people that uh, kind of what what said went happened. Uh, so then uh, we returned from that. The army, uh, in its infinite wisdom, again decided to allow me to uh, do another. Uh, three months on recruiting duty uh, in the summer of 2008, which was really the only time I had down, the only summer I had uh, in between uh, that deployment and the next deployment in uh, in June of 09. And uh, so 09 to 10, um, I was in Afghanistan. Uh, this time I was a platoon sergeant. We did a security escort mission in uh, Regional Command East, focused out of Fob Fenty, Jalalabad, uh, moving supplies north to uh, Fob Bostic. Uh, and at this point, um, uh, we were not we were not logistics. Uh, we were gun trucks. We were uh, security escort. So uh, typically, missions that would have been uh, given to you know MPs or uh, you know of course uh, scouts or, or infantry, uh, mobile infantry. That uh, that's what we did. Is uh, we were um, uh, in charge of um, ensuring the the safe uh, delivery. 
um, and a lot of that was uh, was pretty kinetic. Uh, so uh, uh, that was my most kinetic deployment. Uh, we lost some great people on that deployment, and uh, and and probably and as I've written before, and and I'll probably talk about before both the uh, the best time and the worst time uh, that I've ever had in the military. You know, it's uh, it's really interesting in that uh, there's certain areas uh, that are some really big hot spots. You know, you'll you'll hear about uh, uh, Helmand Province and and uh, the Argandab Valley south. Uh, I think it's uh, southeast or, or, or northeast of Kandahar. You know, uh, Paktia and Paktika Province in uh, in RC East South. Um, how they split it, uh, and then in 2KL, um, in 2KLs where we were operating out of. Um, and uh, in, in some of the, the most significant uh, uh, events of the, uh, uh, of the Afghan conflict up to that time uh, were happening in RC East. And a lot of it was uh, PSAF, uh, precision small arms fire, snipers, um, and uh, harassment fire, but we did have some pretty hairy firefights, uh, and uh, later on in our deployment started uh, cropping up with IEDs. And so uh, led a platoon with that, uh, me and my platoon leader, uh, Blake Howard, you're a great guy. You're probably not going to listen to this, but I'll make sure you get a, uh, a link. Uh, but uh, my uh, my guys uh, and gals um, in in that uh, in that time uh, are some of the bravest uh, and some of the most courageous, uh, some of the strongest uh, people that I've uh, ever known, uh, ever had the honor to know. Uh, came back from that, um, was given the opportunity to uh, take over a company, uh, so spent some time as a first sergeant. Um, helping uh, helping some uh, some wounded uh, warriors transition um, from uh, uh, from active duty, uh, and so uh, that's really where I I kind of got the bug to uh, start focusing on helping veterans afterwards. And I first started seeing that you know we can do all kind of different things for veterans. We can uh, uh, make sure that uh, resumes are squared away, uh, but if their mind is not right, if their mindset is not right, um, then uh, then the transition is going to be a challenging one for them. Uh, after that gig as a first sergeant, I had the opportunity to go back to uh, to Afghanistan, 2011-2012, uh, uh, on a MIT team assignment. Um, a uh, it was actually uh, we called it a validation transition team. So we worked with the Afghan Ministry of Defense in uh, in in assessing and validating Afghan company elements uh, as they finished up with their training. So essentially, uh, if you were in the military, you think of uh, OCs. Um, at the National Training Center, Joint Readiness Training Center, or uh, you know, if, if you're going through any kind of um, major training exercise, you have a group of cadre that are uh, evaluating you, uh, observing you. Uh, and that's what we did in conjunction with some uh, Afghan uh, Ministry of Defense level colonels uh, and, uh, and their staff. Uh, so did that for about nine months, uh, came back, and uh, right as I was uh, planning on ending up my uh, career and hanging up my spurs, uh, the Army, again, in its infinite wisdom, decided to let me uh, uh, jump out of airplanes again. Uh, one thing I'd uh, forgotten to mention, I uh, glossed over the early part of my career. I spent three years in the 82nd back in the late 90s, uh, and, uh, and and consider that one of my most enjoyable assignments. And uh, leaving Fort Bragg thinking I would get back fairly quickly and uh, uh, never got back to the airborne community until I was almost too old to enjoy it. And uh, the Army decided to send me to 10th Special Forces Group, uh, which, uh, which I appreciated. Um, extended my, uh, my military career for about a year or so when I decided to do some uh, excitement and venture really wild things. Had the opportunity to go to North Africa with those bubbas um, and... Uh, and, and really appreciated the ability to uh, uh, kind of go out on top uh, in my military career and, uh, and, and find an assignment that, uh, um, that I really enjoyed. Injured myself on a jump in uh, 2012 because uh, jumping when you're uh, uh, 40 years old is nothing like jumping when you're 28 years old uh, or 25 years old. And uh, uh, injured uh, myself Halloween 2012. I uh, had to jump twice more just to make sure that I locked it in pretty good uh, because uh, I have no um, knowledge or understanding of what my limits are. And, uh, and, and continued to kind of re-injure myself and decided uh, in the, uh, the summer of 13 when I came back from uh, North Africa to, to go ahead and, and uh, hang up the old uh, parachute. 
And so, uh, in in one sense, uh, I do have a, a well-rounded understanding of the military mindset. Uh, most of my uh, support, uh, the majority of my support, has all been in light infantry support, uh, both in the 82nd, 4th Infantry, and 2nd Infantry Divisions, uh, as well as 10th Special Forces Group. Uh, and so, um, I've, I've worked a, a very closely with a, a lot of uh, the... Uh, uh, light infantry guys. I have no clue about tanks and armor. Sorry, Eddie, but uh, um, you got to find another uh, logistics guy for that kind of stuff. But not only then um, do I have the understanding of the military mindset, uh, the leadership aspect, um, the um, uh, the hurry up and wait, all of the different things that come along with the military. I have the um, the experience uh, and the training as a clinical mental health counselor. Uh, to be able to kind of bridge the gap uh, between what a veteran knows uh, and what a uh, uh, and what a mental health professional knows. So now that I've given you an overview of uh, a little bit about uh, who I am and what I do, um, both as a mental health professional and as a veteran, um, just gave you the uh, thirty thousand foot view of uh, what I do now and what I did then. I, I wanted to be able to, to give you 10 different points of, um, of, of sort of the things I believe about veteran mental health. Um, so I'm going to kind of run through these uh, pretty quick. I'm not going to go in-depth into a, a whole bunch of them um, because uh, these are all topics that I, I'm going to uh, be addressing uh, throughout the course of the show. Um, so uh, this is a, a little bit of a preview of the things that uh, maybe I think, um, the things that I believe. Uh, I do have to tell you that even though I am a mental health professional, uh, nothing on here uh, should be construed as professional clinical mental health counseling advice because I don't know what your situation is. I'm not familiar with uh, your experiences, uh, and uh, I always recommend uh, uh, if I'm talking to uh, any veteran on Veterati or uh, I often... uh, um, do some phone consultations and things like that. Uh, it is not in a clinical role whatsoever, and that you should uh, definitely seek clinical mental health counseling advice from someone that you speak to face to face, someone who is authorized to uh, to operate a, a licensed professional in your area. Uh, so uh, here it is: ten different things that I believe uh, about um, veteran mental health. Number one. Uh, Mental health and wellness is an essential part of our military transition uh, as employment, housing, everything else. Uh, In the period of time uh, after uh, I retired and and before I um, became a full-time mental health professional, I was working as a program director for a nonprofit that provided housing for homeless veterans. And I saw that we could do uh, just about everything we could uh, for these veterans, um, provide them uh, you know, good clothes to do interviews in, um, interview techniques, uh, set them up with jobs, find them, um, you know, locations that would be able to get them into housing. Well, the one thing that we had challenges with over and over again is um, helping them get clinical mental health counseling. Uh, And for a lot of these veterans, and the one thing we couldn't do is get them clinical mental health counseling. Uh, and for a lot of these veterans, um, that was uh, a challenge in, in, uh, in kind of what got them into the place where uh, life fell apart. You know, we can do all that we can, get the resume in place, um, do all the networking that we can. But if we don't have our, our mindset right, if we don't transition properly, if we don't uh, focus, uh, if we don't manage our emotions, if we don't pay attention to our relationships... Um, then, uh, then we're not going to be as effective as we possibly could be. So that's number one, mental health and wellness, essential part of military transition. Uh, number two, not all veterans have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this is a uh, common stereotype that some who are not in the service have, um, but there's uh, a lot of veterans who uh, say, oh, well, I have PTSD, and no, you really don't. Post-traumatic stress disorder meets a certain set of criteria, um, of which uh, I'm sure we'll get into later, um, but uh, it's it's something that's uh, that has to be evaluated and diagnosed by a uh, clinical mental health professional. Many people say that it exists only to uh, uh, to you know, pad the the pockets and and we can bill insurance and everything else like that. Um, but 
Post-traumatic stress disorder in and of itself is a diagnosable mental health condition that lasts far beyond what a natural response to trauma would be. One of the uh, requirements for post-traumatic stress disorder is that it must last longer than 30 days after the traumatic incident. And there's certain other criteria that, uh, that we can definitely go into later, um, but uh, the, the prevalence rate, the frequency of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in individuals that have been exposed to trauma uh, is only about, um, in, in some of the studies have said, anywhere from 11 to 20%. Uh, so one in four or uh, one in five uh, is a pretty big number. Uh, however, it's not every veteran. Uh, a significant majority of veterans do not have diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that's not saying that uh, they don't experience some challenges, um, they experience some aspects of post-traumatic stress disorder in, in one time in their life uh, and, uh, and experience a different one at different times. Um, those kind of things happen too. Um, but diagnosable clinical um, PTSD is not as prevalent as either the uh, civilian community or either uh, veterans would have us believe. Um, and so understanding what the difference is, um, not every veteran who deployed uh, has PTSD. It's, it's patently false. And the assumption that, uh, that some people have that that's the case uh, can certainly uh, hurt the veteran community, uh, not to mention individual veterans themselves. So, mental health and wellness, essential part of military transition. Not all veterans have PTSD. Along with that, number three, the challenges veterans face go beyond PTSD and traumatic brain injury. Um, uh, as I've mentioned elsewhere, I think uh, when I talked to Eddie um, uh, in the episode I'll refer to here in a minute, um, you know, PTSD is a uh, uh, sort of behavioral response. There are neurological bases of PTSD. Uh, and I'm going to have some uh, brain specialists come on and talk about how uh, exposure to trauma physically changes the, the, the regions and the structures in our brain, um, just as a, a blast and repeated blast and repeated exposure um, to, uh, to IEDs and concussive blasts and uh, banging your head on, on uh, concrete and, and armor um, can lead to traumatic brain injury. Uh, but there are things that veterans experience um, that can create challenges in their post-military life that go beyond PTSD and TBI. Substance use, huge one. Um, uh, anywhere from 75 to 80% of veterans who have some type of mental health condition, depression, um, anxiety or disorders, PTSD, of course, TBI, uh, 80% of them also have a co-occurring substance use disorder. Uh, is that because of the, uh, the, the culture of the military? Uh, substance use is, uh, is common. Is it because of the numbing effects uh, of uh, substance use, the, the uh, dulling of the chronic pain? When I talk about substance use, I'm not just talking about uh, alcohol, uh, not even just talking about marijuana, but, uh, but prescription um, pills, uh, abusing prescription pills, opiates uh, in particular. Uh, and then the shift from opiates to to heroin, um, to you know opioids, uh, perks on the street, and stuff like that. Uh, so I see a lot of veterans that struggle not just with uh, something totally separate from their PTSD, um, that they also have a co-occurring substance use disorder. Um, emotion dysregulation, not being able to figure out how to control my emotions. Again, totally separate from PTSD. Uh, I've seen veterans who haven't had the ability to regulate their emotions, to understand their emotions um, that weren't exposed to trauma, but, uh, but you know, do whatever basic uh, uh, situations, um, learned helplessness, uh, being trapped in a situation that you can't change, um, uh, things like, uh, you know, just uh, on edge all the time. Uh, and, and a lot of things will overlap. And so people say, oh, that's hypervigilance. Um, hypervigilance is not an anxiety disorder, so it's something totally separate. Uh, another thing that a lot of veterans struggle with is a uh, lack of purpose and meaning. I, I would say that this is probably one of the biggest uh, challenges outside of PTSD and TBI uh, that goes across the board for all veterans. And we were in the military. We, had, we were, we were uh, kings and queens of our fate, so to speak. Uh, of course, not... Uh, uh, not entirely, but uh, but we were important, and we knew we were important. Even though we were small, we we you know small cog in the machine, we were very important. And so, 
uh, getting out and finding a job that doesn't give you that type of meaning and purpose and, and uh, understanding, um, that's something that's pretty significant as well. Uh, again, um, not PTSD, not traumatic brain injury. Uh, the, another aspect that goes beyond PTSD is uh, something that's called moral injury. And this is how our core beliefs about what's right and wrong with the world are changed by our experiences. Um, Eddie and I uh, actually spoke about moral injury uh, pretty much at length in episode 160 uh, of the Change Your POV podcast. So I would definitely uh, go back and listen to that if, if that's something that, uh, that you're interested in hearing. Uh, and, and I hope to have some of the uh, leading um, uh, researchers and practitioners on uh, moral injury come on the show uh, and talk more in depth because uh, uh, what I see with a lot of veterans that uh, they may think is PTSD it's actually about what we believe to be right and wrong with the world has been changed by our experiences. Another thing that I see um, that, uh, that veterans can struggle with or have struggled with is figuring out how to meet our needs. You know, if you, you were, many of us are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and uh, we learn to meet those needs in a certain way. We're in the military. Sometimes uh, some of those needs are really kind of taken care of for us. We don't have to worry about our uh, security or our safety or our, we don't have to worry about our security or our safety, uh, or our, our, you know, biological needs, so to speak, uh, because that's really, um, kind of, uh, supported for us. But as you go up the hierarchy, our, our aesthetic needs, uh, we learn to appreciate things that, that may not be as socially acceptable. Um, and, uh, when we get out of the military, we have to meet those needs in a new way, figuring out how to do that. It's not something like, oh, I have to learn to be an adult or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that I now have to understand how to meet old needs in new ways. Uh, and another challenge that goes beyond uh, PTSD and TBI, uh, we've all been there, is uh, relationship challenges. So my wife and I um, have been married for uh, four out of my five deployments. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to say it's been easy, and she'll definitely tell you it's not been easy. Um, but figuring out... Uh, how to re-engage in relationships after we've experienced combat or after we've been in the military, after we have uh, learned to, uh, to, to, to do things in a certain way. Uh, so uh, that's number, uh, number three, is uh, not all challenges um, that veterans face um, have to do with uh, PTSD and uh, TBI. <clears throat> number four uh, really kind of goes along with that is, uh, not all those things are, are, are what you would consider crazy. I mean, it's, it's normal reactions to, um, a, a life that's not exactly normal. You don't have to be crazy to talk to a mental health professional. Um, working with a counselor can help you understand how to put a lot of these different things, uh, in place. Number five, uh, military service is an entirely different life. That means an entirely different culture. Uh, in the military, we have our own uh, way of speaking. We have our own language. We have our own way of thinking. Uh, we have our own um, uh, way of dressing. Um, we are not ever going to be a civilian because a civilian has not had the uh, lived experiences that we have um, as service members. Uh, and so understanding that once you leave the military service, you are a veteran, and that means you have a different mindset. I often describe it as uh, uh, if I went to go live in Ireland for 22 years uh, and then came back and tried to live in America, uh, it'd be a little different. It'd be a little challenging because even though we speak the same language, there are some different nuances. There's cultural differences. There's just different ways of, of thinking and experiencing. Uh, and so once we understand that our military service is, is a culture and that, um, like it or not, we are different, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it's, it's good or bad. Um, it's just that it is a different culture and a different experience. Number six is tied into that. Any mental health professional working with a veteran should understand that culture in order to provide the most benefit. This is something that I truly believe that anyone who is going to be working as a mental health professional as a veteran needs to be able to understand what that veteran went through, what they experienced, and what their culture is like. 
Some people interpret that to mean that I think that every mental health professional that works with veterans should be a veteran. I don't believe that's true. I have a lot of colleagues who are uh, extremely capable, who are not veterans, but they've taken the time to understand. They've taken the time to learn what it's like uh, to, to, uh, to be in that culture. Uh, and that's all that's necessary um, is, uh, is that they take the time to learn and understand. Uh, the seventh thing that I believe about veteran mental health is that uh, veterans want people to understand their story and they don't want to have to tell people about it at the same time. Uh, you'll hear me talk often about paradoxes, different paradoxes that veterans face. And this is probably one of the biggest ones is many veterans want those who have never served in combat to understand what they went through their own personal story. They want them to know what their personal experiences are and they don't want to have to tell anybody about it. And so uh, this is a challenge with a lot of veterans um, that uh, once one of those things becomes more important than the other, either the need to tell the story or the desire not to tell the story, um, that uh, that won't be resolved. It, it won't be fixed. Um, and so giving the veterans the opportunity to tell their story in, a, uh, in an appropriate and safe way uh, is very important. Point number eight is the fact that perpetuating the stigma against seeking mental health counseling is causing veterans to prolong their pain, not reduce it. This idea of I'm going to suck it up, I'm going to drive on, other people have it worse than me, I'm not going to go see a shrink, you're not going to get it out of me, I don't talk about my emotions, you can't make me cry. Uh, that's not the point. I'm not sitting here trying to make every veteran cry. I'm not trying to get you to tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, what I do want is for you to be able to have these, these problematic challenges be in their proper place. And uh, perpetuating the stigma against this uh, is causing you to prolong your pain, not reduce it. Number nine, there's no need to suffer in silence or keep it a shameful secret. Suffering in silence is exactly that. It's suffering. There are mental health professionals out there who understand veterans, who get veterans. And I'm going to bring a lot of them on the show here. There's a lot of different resources. Uh, you can do a quick Google search. There'll be hundreds of thousands of hits for mental health professionals who are familiar with uh, veterans and their experiences. There is absolutely no reason, no need to suffer. It, it, the, the resources are out there. The help is out there. Uh, and so uh, that's my goal is to be able to bring some of that understanding uh, to, to bring that out uh, into, uh, into awareness, into the community, into the veteran community to say, you know what, uh, if things are getting rough, uh, if, if the uh, kayak's about to tip over, if you're about to have a rollover, there are people who can help you. And then finally, number 10, uh, and this is something that's, uh, that's pretty significant and it's kind of the elephant in the room. And if we don't talk about it, uh, it's, uh, um, <clears throat> people are going to wonder why. Uh, and that's the fact that uh, veteran suicide is real. It's an epidemic. It's highly personal. It's very complicated. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, it's not necessary. You know, we can, uh, we can have a lot of different discussions about uh, end of life, um, about uh, whether some people, you know, uh, who've uh, committed heinous crimes, um, you know, uh, and this type of thing. And that goes into the complicated aspect. But the majority of the times and the, the, the suicides that I have personally been involved in, um, that, uh, um, that it has been very destructive to the community, uh, to, to, to those of us who experience it. There's not a veteran that I know who has not lost more people to suicide since their deployments than they did while they were on deployment. Uh, the casualties are continuing, uh, and it's not necessary. Understanding what suicide is, talking about suicide, um, bringing it out into the open, all of these things are very important. Uh, you don't have to be a mental health professional. In fact, the, the, the chance is likely that you're not, that a mental health professional is not going to be the first one to talk to a veteran who's contemplating suicide. Uh, one in four veterans actually have the thought the contemplation of suicide. It doesn't mean they're suicidal. It doesn't mean that we need to take away their guns. It doesn't mean that we need to lock them away. Suicide happens on a continuum. And again, I'm going to be bringing on some, uh, some professionals to talk about the veteran suicide. 
So there's, those are some uh, quick 10 points uh, that I personally believe about mental health. I'll recap them real quick. Uh, mental health and wellness is an essential part of our military transition, um, just like our employment, just like our housing, resume, everything else. Number two, not all veterans have post-traumatic stress disorder. Number three, the challenges that veterans do have go beyond post-traumatic stress disorder and TBI. Number four, you don't have to be crazy to talk to a mental health professional. Uh, number five, military service is an entirely different life, and that means an entirely different culture. And the sooner we understand that, uh, the easier it's going to be. Number six, any mental health professional working with the veteran should understand that culture in order to provide the most benefit. Number seven is that veterans want people to understand their story, but they don't want to have to tell people about it. And that's something that veterans have to, to resolve to be able to get support. Number eight, perpetuating the stigma against seeking mental health counseling is causing veterans to prolong their pain, not reduce it. Number nine, no need to suffer in silence or keep what you're struggling with a shameful secret. And the number 10, veteran suicide is an epidemic. It's highly personal, very complicated, and in my opinion, completely unnecessary. So there you have it, folks. Uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to listen uh, again. Uh, these first couple episodes are going to be uh, about me talking um, a little bit more in depth about some of this stuff or some of the ideas about uh, what a veteran wants their mental health professional to know, what a mental health professional wants a veteran to know. Uh, and I've got some uh, pretty good interviews lined up coming up in the next couple weeks uh, talking about veteran mental health, not just uh, here in the U.S., uh, but uh, some of our uh, coalition partners overseas. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I really think that, uh, if you take the time to listen uh, and understand and raise your awareness about veteran mental health, uh, that you'll find that it's time well spent. Look forward to, uh, hearing your feedback, uh, feel free to, uh, to subscribe, uh, to be able to, uh, leave a review if you'd like to do that. And, uh, and definitely, um, give me your feedback. Uh, it's always welcome. Thank you very much and have a nice day. Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.